We're eternally grateful that he does. And why us? Mercy. It's all mercy. Uh, praise the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, I'd like to get a microphone over to Joe and Danielle Ross. You are here, and we'd like to introduce you, have you introduce your little one. If there's any other little ones here for the first time, you need to raise your hand so we can have you do the same. Uh, if they're with you in the auditorium this morning. So Joe, Joe you're going to get the microphone here from Tyler and introduce us to this new little one. This is uh, Lucas Ross, and he was born November 30th, so he is eight weeks old. Congratulations to you Thank both. You. I can't Thank wait you. to see him in person after the service. Glad you're doing well. Thank Thanks. you. Praise God. Amen. Thank you. What a great uh, holiday present. Praise God. Thank you very, very much. Anyone else? I want to thank you personally for sending Rhonda and I all your birthday wishes. We turn the same age every year on the same week. Uh, we're two days apart from one another. So uh, I turned 51 um, on January 16th. And um, we thank you for your cards and for your encouragement. It's a tremendously helpful. Uh, I got one of the cards, and, uh, and the front cover said, and God said, let there be light. And I opened up the card, it says, and there was your birthday cake. <laughs> so I guess that doesn't happen until you uh, go past the, uh, the half century mark. So apparently... God's using me to be light in this world. Uh, <laughs> all right, that was enough of that. All right, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 this morning. I'm so glad you're here. It's a packed house, a good spirit. Um, Jesus said upon himself that he would build his church and the gates of hell could not prevail against it. Amen. And uh, we're so thankful for your joyful spirits and uh, your encouragement to each other and to us as a church family. And, and uh, can I just tell you, I, I try to tell you as often as I can, I'm just, uh, I don't know, I don't think I'm, some, sometimes I don't feel like I'm old enough to use the words, I'm proud of you. Um, but I'll, so for now, I'll just tell you, I'm in, in, immensely thankful for you as a church family. As you grow in the word um, and you grow each other in the word, uh, there's an increased amount of uh, spiritual transparency among you that continues to mirror uh, the transparency that we see between and among believers in the New Testament uh, as you read it. So just keep increasing more and more and uh, continue to thank the Lord for eternal fruit that he'll give. Uh, you should see some more new birth announcements coming out. Uh, this week, uh, the Lord's given us uh, a healthy handful of uh, new believers in the month of January. As we begin the new year, we're super thankful for that. And so keep praying, keep ministering, keep being light. Uh, Jesus will continue to build his church. Chris, it's great to see you. I didn't see you till now. You've had quite a ordeal. How many weeks was that, Carissa? Two full weeks. She was in and out of the hospital and wondering what was going on, and I'm glad you're here, strong enough to be here. 
Uh, praise the Lord for that. All right, chapter 4. Let's read together here the first 12 verses. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles. The Gentiles here would just be not an ethnicity, but a spiritual condition, like those who don't know Christ, who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. The matter there is in relationship to sexual immorality mentioned in verse 3. Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do in practice. You do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, keep growing, keep excelling more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Now, outsiders there is the second synonym that Paul gives us here just for those who don't know the Lord Jesus uh, like he did with the word Gentiles back there in verse 5. Toward outsiders and not be in any need. We announced a few weeks ago that our theme for 2019 is looking and living, looking for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how does that help us govern our living? Now, we want to be very, very careful, and we've sought to be that looking or anticipating possibly seeing the Lord Jesus today is not exclusively the only thing that helps us govern our living, but certainly it's a significant event that uh, helps us govern the way we live now so that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll, we'll be able to see him not just positionally um, in a confident way, but practically by the way that we live our lives. That's the theme of this whole letter. We mentioned that all five chapters conclude with the mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this church at Thessalonica was excited. They were, they were regularly excited as individuals and then collectively as a body to see Jesus. And so we, individually and collectively, need to be increasing in our anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And maybe today, maybe today. James chapter 5 mentions that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent, but he's coming back and the sign of his coming uh, can be exciting for us, but somewhat 
uh, defeating for those who don't know him. He's coming back as Savior for us, but when he comes back, he's, you know, he's coming back as judge for those who, who don't know him. But for us, we're excited to see him. And in anticipation of seeing him, we want to live like him now. Live like him now. I want to uh, restate something that's glaringly obvious, that this letter was written to a local church. There were letters in the New Testament that, that traveled around to numerous churches. This letter was directed to uh, the church at Thessalonica. We are a local church. What we see as a reality that was lived out in these people's lives in this local church should be the reality that we see lived out in our own lives here in Mentor. These people anticipated individually and collectively the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they also did something that was a fruit of that anticipation. They lived the Christian life together. In their homes, obviously. And then collectively as a church, uh, there was no one in the Thessalonian church that were told. There's several different passages that we'll highlight in all five chapters. There's not one soul that we're told of in this, in this church that tried to be kind of like a Lone Ranger Christian. They did it together. So that's why we try to emphasize here as, as much as we can, and it, my goodness, it's a, um, it's a spiritual goal, but as you, as you try to, to, to nurture a church to uh, be shepherding each other in the Word of God in a personal way, uh, it, it, it's, I don't want to call it an imperfect science, but it certainly is. It's worth the effort, uh, but it takes a lot of intentional hard work. I don't think any one of us in our nature loves to be completely transparent with anyone that knows us well. I don't think it's natural in our, in our, in our nature to want to be known very well. But in a church that's healthy, like the Thessalonian church, uh, there was a very high level of personal spiritual transparency among these people. They grew each other in the Word. We read this morning in verse 9 and 10 that Paul had nothing to tell them about how to love one another. That's an individual love and then a collective love. Because they themselves were taught of God how to train each other how to love one another. Later on in chapter 5 that we'll see next week, these people were very, very uh, involved with growing each other, building each other up doctrinally in the word that they had and then practically in the daily lives that they lived. They did this together. So it's a local church anticipating a great event. That's the next event on our eschatological calendar in the future, right? That we look forward to. And that event certainly helped by God's grace compel them to live this Christian walk together. Okay. 
in a very, very spiritual and transparent way. You would all agree that a good marriage takes hard work, right? And it's worth it. I would say that solid, mature relationships in a local church take hard work, but they're worth it. They're worth it. They'll have their ups and their downs and their ins and their outs, but definitely more glory than agony. Personal growth in Christ's likeness we always call a glorious agony. I would say transparent spiritual relationships in a local church are the same. It's always going to be a glorious agony, but certainly more glory than agony. Obviously, if you're married, that relationship begins between you and the Lord and your spouse and then your family. But when we gather many families and individuals together here at church, that spiritual transparency and health should flow over out of our homes and out of our apartments and our condos right here to our church family. I should be able to confidently stand here as your pastor and say, I can't live the Christian life successfully without you. Okay? That might sound strange to some of you. For decades, you know, pastors were kind of set up on a pedestal. Um, I don't even like preaching up here because I feel like I'm talking down to you. I wish I could preach from the floor. Right? And I know we do that to elevate the book on a box, not a person. But for years, the, the person that preached the book that was put on an elevated box was also almost elevated to the position of the book. And he, he, he kind of preached the book and, and lived his life as the man of God. Right? The, the Bible doesn't teach anyone, including the shepherd of a church, lives the Christian life alone without significant help from the people he worships with. So I can confidently say I would be tremendously unsuccessful in living the Christian life without you people. Tremendously unsuccessful. And that was the reality of the Thessalonian church. Years ago, faithfulness to the local church was, was summed up in when the doors are open, you should be there. We have four services a week here. Why would you want to miss any of them? That's what we were told years ago. So the motivation was getting there was pretty much a motivation by uh, a numeric goal. And I suppose there wasn't anything merely wrong with that, but when that's exclusively the goal, I find it troubling. A healthy church, like the Thessalonian church, and as we grow, I trust in the likeness of Christ and the reality of this church that, that the number of services would become quite irrelevant because overshadowing the number of services is the, is the desperate need we have for each other to help each other grow in Christ's likeness and walk in this old dark world. Years ago when we didn't have this particular level of spiritual transparency, 
we would have a, a large crowd like we do this morning on Sunday morning, and, and Sunday night would be a little skeletal representation of Sunday morning, and Wednesday night probably a little bit less than Sunday night. And then Sunday school, that's just, you know, that's pretty cool for the kids. But in a healthy church, it seems like the number of services overshadowed, the number of people at the number of service becomes somewhat easy to, to come up with, so to speak. And we have almost an equal number of souls here every service now. Studying God's word, listening to the preaching and teaching of studying it together, building spiritual transparency. And so a healthy, transparent, interdependent church, soul to soul, is a church that seems to love to gather together more and more. So when we hear Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, healthy, spiritual, transparent people who are helping each other grow in Christ's likeness, they understand what it means to want to get together more and more because we actually can't do this without each other. So this, this isn't dotting I's and crossing T's of church attendance. I did it. It's not saving my ecclesiastical spiritual conscience that I went and I did. I went through the motions. This is so much more meaningful than that. So much more meaningful than that. These people could not walk the Christian walk without the assistance of fellow saints in their local church. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Several weeks ago, and you can go back and study this on your own on our website, but we studied the nature of where this kind of faithfulness comes from. It starts with God, continues with God, and ends with God. And we looked at that in chapter 5 and chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, we, we started to, to discover together how this faithfulness that's by nature started, continued, and finished with God is nurtured among us. I think it's good to renote to you that there's not a pastor who is directly addressed in this whole letter, these five chapters. This is, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the people. These were people who were nurturing each other's faith. They realized again, they, they couldn't do it well at all without an interdependent spiritual transparency with people in their local church. They had to have each other. We studied in Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that this nurturing begins immediately upon someone coming to know Christ as their Savior. Verse 6 says these people began to follow somebody in chapter 1 that was more spiritual than they. And verse 7 says that they became examples then to others, for others to follow them. This interdependent spiritual reciprocity is a real fruit of the grace of God as people grow in their local church. And the Spirit of God underpins those interdependent growth efforts where we're always following someone more mature than we and always able then by their example to become an example to those less mature than us. We studied in chapter 2 that 
this humble fellowship is, is governed by a graceful, sweet disposition. This is, this is different than someone living under the, the, the rule and the harsh dominion of a tough boss or a tough teacher in a classroom, right? This is a disposition that's tender and kind and patient, nurturing. But it has, it has a resource. It has a resource that is continually known more and more in the Word of God. And we grow each other according to that resource in this disposition as we described the last time we were together. And the nurturing of this faithfulness not only has a humble fellowship and leadership and a, and, a, and a sweet disposition, but it has a development that uh, affects the whole of your faith. Last week we learned that in chapter 3, faith's mentioned, the word faith is mentioned five times. And as we grow each other in our faith, we're, we're able to help each other face affliction, tough things that come into our lives, right? We're able to help each other fight off temptation to sin. And we're able to grow each other to be more complete and mature in the Word of God. But we, we do this together. We do this together. As we grow our faith, we face affliction together. We fight temptation, endure temptation together, and we grow spiritually uh, together. I want you to notice at the end of chapter 3, the third mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ultimate virtue that Paul highlights here that becomes the virtue of the individual Christian life as we grow each other in our faith together. He says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Paul wanted to see them again. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all the people he's crescendoing here to this virtue, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. I find it very interesting here that he crescendos to this one particular attribute of God at his third mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he not pick other attributes? I've always thought that when I read this text. Why would he not pick mercy or why would he not pick justice? All those other attributes that we're familiar with, why holiness? That becomes a theme, a sub-theme of this whole letter. When we grow each other together, according to the word of God, we become more and more like Christ. We become different than the culture in which we live. And this has been a transcultural reality over all time for all believers who seek to grow their faith with one another together, sourced in God's Word. In other words, we can't help ourselves but become different than our culture and become more like Christ as we shepherd each other in the Word. We can't help it. It just happens. We nurture our faith unto this virtue of holiness, separateness, different than, countercultural. Than. 
And he touches on first uh, the most prevalent way in which Christians demonstrate this spiritual health, this holiness in a countercultural way in any culture. In verse 3 that we read a little bit ago. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. I think it's safe to assume that in any culture of any time, most people were probably immoral before they got saved. Is that a safe assumption to make? I think it was true in this culture, and I think it's certainly true in our culture. I grew up in a little microcosm of very conservative Christianity, and I grew up in a world where I just thought everyone was moral. Everyone in my culture seemed to be. I didn't think anyone understood or or practiced um, immorality before marriage. I was that naive. I, 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 like I said, I grew up in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble of a bubble. I mean, that's just who I was, right? So, and then I find out as you do studies later that pretty much in our culture, as soon as they started doing studies on this in the 1970s forward, that less than 5% of our whole culture enters into marriage not having been immoral. Less than 5%. Wow. That sounds sort of shocking. Well, I think that would be true of this culture in Thessalonica. That would have certainly true in the culture of Corinth. We know it certainly was true in the culture of Rome, right? This is a transcultural dilemma. All right? Sexual immorality. And so when Paul is saying, look, now you're in Christ, you're growing each other in your faith, you're moving towards holiness, which is being distinct from your culture, what he's saying here, guess what? One of the first ways that you're going to want to focus to continue to grow your faith is to make sure that you stop living the lifestyle that was normative in your culture before you were saved. Okay? The text even tells us and we've borne this truth out exegetically, uh, this, mined this truth out before in this text. The text even would tell us within the culture understanding of Thessalonica that a lot of these people were not only immoral before they got married, right? they were immoral in the context of worship. Even worship approved their immorality. And I would say religion does a lot of that today too. Right? Because you can be immoral as much as you want as long as you go and get it forgiven by a vicar who's a representative of God, and then just kind of go out and do it again, do it again, do it again. No transforming power of grace to be countercultural in the way you live. But understand the flow of the whole book here, folks. What he's saying is here, yeah, Christ transforms you. You used to live pretty immoral lifestyles. That's changed. Now this is the will of God for you, You abstain from that which you used to enjoy, even in the context especially of worship, but don't believe that you can ever go this route alone. No one 
divine directive, no one virtue of holiness mentioned in this whole book is to be pursued or lived out alone. Again, I'll speak just to my particular context in growing up. The one way that we... Uh, there's pretty much two exclusive ways that we, we lived out avoiding um, sexual misconduct. We read our Bibles, which is essential, right? And we got accountability partners, right? In some parts of culture where there's vices that have a tendency to govern us, like substance abuse, alcohol abuse, you know, we form little groups and we have accountability partners in those groups to keep us dry or sober, to keep us clean. Well, when it came to doing the wrong thing, when it came to intimacy, we had partners that would keep us accountable along with the Word of God. And it seemed to be a situational partnership that would help us. You know what? Those did have some help. There was some assistance there, to be sure. But there's 99,000 other parts of life besides alcohol, substance abuse, and immorality, <laughs> right? And it's like we took those three because they were the sensational vices of the culture, and we, got, we garrisoned, we guarded ourselves with layers of help and protection, spiritual to practical, but then we would step away and live the rest of our lives alone. These people, it was normative for them to live all of the parts of their lives growing in Christ-likeness apart from worldliness, remember, countercultural lives, with the Lord, with their families, and then together with their church family around the Word of God. This is just what they did. And this is how they maintenanced it. Certainly, further directives are given here in verses 4 to 8 to explicitly and practically tell them how to make sure that they abstain from that type of life that they used to live. That they used to live. There are a myriad of statistics that Christian research groups have come up with studying the culture of immorality in which we live in the United States. And I read those statistics. I, I know what those statistics are. And the more I read this text, I'm just overwhelmed with the sense that, with the, with, with the objective sense, I trust, that, you know what? These stats really don't matter. Stats used to be read about how immoral our culture was to just kind of tell us that you know, America's falling apart. You know, we're no longer a Christian nation and look at all the immorality here, 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 and here. And I thought, you know what? I don't know that there's any part of our lives that's governable apart from being made in the image of God without Christ. It doesn't really matter what the sin Statistics are bound on every sin. Statistics really don't matter because we can't help ourselves but to live sinful lifestyles until the sinless one comes in and changes and then it doesn't stop there. It continues with your walk with the Lord, 
your walk with the Lord with your family, and then your walk with the Lord with each other inside your church. Okay? And Paul is just very matter-of-factly assuming and very matter-of-factly stating, this is what you were, this is what you are, and I'm confident that you're going to continue in this way by how you love each other. Keep growing in holiness. Holiness. So kids that are growing up in this church, right? My kids, your kids, kids that were born into Christian families who are not in God's family until they themselves own Christ and are born again. You may be growing up in a culture like I did where you might be part, hang on with me here, you might be part of the less than 5% of your culture. And probably will be. Your tendency is going to be, if you're not careful, to look at your culture with ugly disdain. With religious, legalistic hate. Look how clean I am, and look how immoral they are. And what the text of Scripture is telling us here. Yeah, it's immoral. Yeah, it's dark living, but they can't help themselves. That's just what they do outside of Christ. And instead of looking on the world with disdain, why don't you look at it with pity and love? And why don't you in turn fall on your knees and thank God by his grace in Jesus Christ early in your life, making you a moral exception to the worldly rule. Continue to be light. We don't say, well, I've lived as light according to God's word, you know, all my life, and, and now I'm just going to go party. I was that less than 5%, so I'm going to college and I'm going to party now. No. Growth in Christ-likeness always yields holiness, which is counter to the culture, but don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Because there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. Even post-salvation. You'll still be tempted. But chapter 3, how do we better face temptation? Together. Affliction, temptation, and growth. We do it together. So, their, their growth together was... Intimate, and intimately mining out the word together so that they could live a moral purity among themselves that they had not been used to living before. So there's a purity here morally, but then there's a practical way in which they learn to love each other together that we saw in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. They didn't have to be taught. They kept growing. Paul said, don't be satisfied, right? In verse 11, or verse 10, keep excelling. And then he points out three simple virtues here that you're familiar with from our past here. Uh, there are three virtues of love here. For those of you who are newer believers who have not heard us speak on this text before, 
The first virtue of someone that's living a pure, countercultural, now practical love inside their home and their local church together, there's three practical ways that's demonstrated in addition to the living their pure lives. Verse 11, the first one is to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The second one is just to attend to your own business. And the third virtue of love here is to work hard with your hands, just as we had commanded you. Lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work hard with your hands. This phrase, lead a quiet life, they were helping each other not make issues out of non-issues. Just write that down. They were helping each other in their walk not make issues out of non-issues. It wasn't a conservative politic that governed their lives. It was the word of God and its understanding that governed their lives. Okay? It wasn't some family creed or understanding of a, uh, a family tree and its conservative history that governed their lives. It was a relationship with their Savior together according to God's word that governed their lives. It wasn't it wasn't emphasizing one doctrine out of many in the scriptures and making that their pet doctrine that govern their lives as a church. Like a lot of churches do, they can make an issue out of a non-issue by giving more attention to a doctrine that the Bible doesn't even give to it. No, it was the whole of the Word of God that they had at their disposal at that time, knowing it and learning it together and then living it together. They weren't making issues out of non-issues. There's a lot of ways that a holy lifestyle affects our decision-making. That's true. That's true. We have to understand the source of the holiness Christ first, the resource of His holiness, His Word. Knowing it together then helps us live it together. Lead a quiet life. It says here, attend to your own business. People who are studying God's word together, let me, let me, let me back up. Studying God's word on their own, then, then in their homes, and, and practically living it out in their homes, and then they come to church, this gathering, and they learn it more and live it more together. These people have no time left in their lives to mill about in somebody else's business. Okay? People who are intrinsically nosy have way too much time on their hands. And I'm not saying they just need to go get a job or they need to add an exercise routine into their weekly schedule. So they're not intrinsically nosy. According to the context here, these people were able to abide by this directive because they were so saturated in learning the Lord's word with the Lord, with their family, and with each other in the church. And folks, how much time does it take to help shepherd your own life, the life of your family, and the life of somebody else in your church? How much time does that take? Those of you who are involved in discipleship here, you know. There's really no more expendable time to get involved in other people's stuff. 
That's, what, that's how love works itself out in a local church. Right? And praise God, I'll tell you what, when I was growing up in this church, nosiness was at an all-time high. <laughs> Seriously. I'd sit there as a pastor's kid, and I could remember just conversations pinging around me. Look at so-and-so's hair. Look at so-and-so. Did they not press that suit? You know, didn't they have tie? Why would they wear that tie? Right? Look how short that skirt is. Oh, my word. Why so much eye makeup? Right? Well, they're dressing like they're living with a lot of debt. All the time, pinging around me. Folks, I don't hear that at all anymore. And I think this is why. When you're investing in God's word in somebody else's life, that takes up your time. There ain't no more time to be intrinsically nosy. Okay? Anyways. And then work hard with your hands. I, I really believe this is not in reference to work inside the local church, but I think it's in reference to your work ethic outside the local church. Right? I really believe in this culture, as I understand the history behind this particular text, that the Thessalonian people all had jobs as heads of their home. Certainly, ladies worked in this culture. Ladies can work in any culture. And they should, as long as it's not at the expense of the other directives given to them in their lives, as in Titus chapter 2 and so forth. For many professional men and women discussed in the scriptures. And I find it very interesting that any time a professional man or woman was mentioned in the scriptures as being a healthy example of what a Christian was, often there's a job attached to who they were. Aquila and Priscilla, husband-wife team, were personal business owners, small business owners. Acts 16, Lydia was an entrepreneur in the textile industry. Often, when someone's mentioned male or female as being a healthy example to look, they did work. They did work. The Bible says if a man didn't work, he shouldn't eat. And I find it really interesting here, too, at Grace. And we're nowhere near where we need to be in any one of these areas. We've got a long way to go. Let's just keep loving each other, right? Excel more and more, as Paul said. But I find here in recent years that the jobless rate inside our church is almost zero on any given week. Discipling people, disciple-making people just naturally go to work. And what does the text say in verse number 12? So that you will behave properly towards who? The outsiders. I think all three of these things, two of them are appropriate for the inside and one of them is appropriate. One virtue of love is in reference to those on the outside. The outsiders here are synonymous with Gentiles in verse 5. Like I said, they're unbelievers. You're having, these folks were having a great testimony in the workplace. A great testimony of longevity in the workplace. Ethics in the workplace. There's no disposition in the workplace. There's no one that's been here longer 
There's no one that's been here with greater integrity. There's no one that's been here with greater joy. Whether I had a good boss or a bad boss, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. And therefore, in God's mind, there's no one that's been there with greater spiritual influence. That's what Paul's saying here. You have a good testimony towards those who are on the outside. But where did that testimony come from? You came to know Jesus. You started reading his word. You got connected with someone else to help you grow you in your faith. You were a part of a local church that preached God's word faithfully, helped you understand it and apply it so that you can go out and live it together. And then we have what? Then we have these three practical expressions of love. You have a church that's not making issues out of non-issues. You have a church that's not intrinsically nosy. And you have a church that's having a greater influence for Christ's sake in their community because they've been living counterculturally together. Together. Okay? So, living the Christian life together does give birth to the virtue of holiness in our lives, separateness, God-likeness in our lives, as shown in chapter 4 in the way we live with pure lifestyles, sexually pure lifestyles, and the way we practice, the way we love one another, and the way we influence those in our community. We just do it together, everything we do together. Okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We, we thank you for the simplicity of your word and and thank you, Lord, uh, that as a pastor, I can stand here and confidently say, I, I certainly know how capable you are. Uh, I know how capable your word is. And, 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 and yet, Lord, in your word, it, it seems as, as, as divinely capable uh, as those two, you and your resource, the word is, we still desperately need our fallen condition, the help of those who are Christian, not just Christianized, but those who are Christian, uh, to live this pure and practical way. Uh, Lord, I'm a, I'm a tremendously privileged individual to be among a people that want to help me grow in my understanding of moral purity and practical living. Pray that all of us in this room, as the Thessalonian church did, would embrace that same opportunity to really enjoy this kind of spiritual transparency as we anticipate your imminent return. In Jesus' name, amen.